What up, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, on, yep, you guessed it, another amazing episode of The Matt Baxter Show. I'm hanging out with such a legend. Uh, you may not know him by name, but I guarantee you know something that he's probably written in the sports world. I guarantee you've probably written uh, or, excuse me, read something uh, or, or watched an event that he was at or rewatched an event that he was at from back in the day. Len Shapiro has been an amazing journalist through many, many, many years. Uh, tons of Super Bowls, tons of Olympics, uh, Miracle on Ice. He was at that game. This guy covered so many golf championships, so many golf tours, so many golf uh, uh, amazing, amazing events all around the world. Um, and Len just brings such an awesome, fun perspective on what it means to be a sports uh, journalist and sports writer. And I'm just so very honored. I got to meet uh, Len and his lovely wife uh, at a uh, at a horse auction uh, in New York. We got sp- spent some amazing time together, and then we dove in on this podcast and had an absolute blast. So, Len, I, I can't even begin to thank you uh, for the way that you took a sporting event, put it to words for somebody to digest through so many years, so many amazing written articles, and it was just a blast to hear you swap some stories in this podcast. So thanks for the man that you are. Thanks for the impact that you've had on the sports world and just for the impact that you had being a guest on the show. And I hope everybody else enjoys it just as much as I did. Thanks. Len, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. My pleasure, Matt. I, uh, <clears throat> I need to give context, a little, little bit of backstory. So for those that do not know, um, I am sort of inadvertently involved in the thoroughbred uh, horse industry, and that's through my father. My father has a dear friend named Jim Fitzgerald, who is one of the most wild characters in the world. There should be a movie, book, anything written about him. But uh, we were at a dinner in uh, New York where I had the chance to sit next to Len and his lovely wife, and we got to get to know each other a little bit, and I thought, man, what an amazing guy to have on a podcast. So Len... I'm very fired up you're here. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so uh, I'd love if you just kind of gave your story, your background. would love to hear a little bit more about life and uh, kind of what brought you up to where you're at today. All right, sure. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm a native New Yorker, grew up on Long Island in a, in a small town uh, in the early 50s and uh, got very lucky. I always loved sports. Uh, I was a big Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up. Uh, now the LA Dodgers broke my heart when I was 10 years old in 1957, but always, always really enjoyed sports, learned how to read, reading the sports pages of the New York papers and, uh, learned how to do math, figuring out batting averages and earned run averages. Uh, I was very lucky, uh, in high school, I had a great, great, great English teacher, uh, who, uh, in my sophomore year and I played soccer and I played baseball. Uh, in between seasons, he said, "You know, why don't you come out for the come out for the school paper? We, you know, we're looking for people to write for the school paper." And and I said, "Well, he must have liked a book report or something I had done, whatever." And I tried it, uh, got my first byline, and loved it. Uh, and uh, Len, Len, real quick, just just so we're on the same page, I yeah. never had a teacher that asked me to. Uh, to uh, help them write anything. In fact, they said, you know what, why don't you get through this class? We'll, we'll, we'll get you out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, as I said, I was very lucky, but <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. They had to have seen something. <laughs> yeah, wonderful teacher. Uh, long story short, I wound up being the sports editor of my high school paper. He also sent me to a journalism Institute at Northwest university 
between my junior and senior year, the 100 kids around the country, uh, five weeks at Northwestern in Evanston. The first day of class, Matt, the uh, head of the program standing up in a lecture hall telling 100 kids from around the country, this is where you have breakfast. This is where you can go have a swim. Here's where you can go learn how to play tennis, blah, 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 blah. And a guy walks up the middle aisle, pulls out a gun and goes, boom, 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 and shoots the professor. Well, no, this is like one of your, this is like one of your first classes. We're talking 1963. Okay. Oh my goodness. uh, You know, we're, we're not that far removed from Al Capone. We're in Chicago here. And uh, we were just stunned. The good news is that five seconds after the professor uh, did a great job going down as if he'd been shot, stood up and hadn't been shot, but then said to the group of 100 young journalists, okay, everybody, up to the typing lab, and I want 300 words in 45 minutes. That was my first introduction to deadline journalism writing. And uh, the rest, as I say, really is history because uh, I knew from that time, I was very lucky again, uh, when I was uh, going into my senior year in high school, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which was to write and, and work for a newspaper. Uh, and I did. I, was this, I went out to the University of Wisconsin, uh, played uh, uh, freshman baseball, almost flunked out, but then uh, rallied, worked for the school newspaper, uh, went to graduate school at the University of Missouri, uh, got a journalism degree that got me to Washington, D.C., Instead of a, a Washington, uh, instead of writing a thesis for your master's in Missouri, they had a Washington program with a professor in residence, about a dozen kids, again, from in grad school. And we were the Washington Bureau, actually, for a bunch of little newspapers around the country who couldn't afford to, to send somebody to Washington, but, you know, liked the fact that we could cover their local congressmen, their local senators. Uh, and that's what we did. While I was doing that, uh, I got a job, a part-time job at the Washington Post, uh, which was hiring college students at the time and still does <clears throat> to take high school sports, uh, to, to do high school sports, answer the phones uh, from kids calling in their, their uh, the box scores and the uh, uh, scores and enough to write a couple of paragraph stories. I did that. Uh, eventually, they put me out and let me cover a couple of high school games. Again, I guess they liked, you know, they liked what they saw. As soon as I got my master's degree, uh, I was uh, I was hired to cover high school sports for the Post. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. Wound up covering the old, uh, and it, it's it's uh, impolitic to call them this, but the I covered the Washington Redskins, now known as the Washington Football Team. I covered them in the in the seventies, the uh, George Allen era. Uh, I became a sport, I became sports editor of the paper in the uh, early 80s and went back to uh, being an editor, Uh, covered some of the Joe Gibbs teams that went to Super Bowls. Uh, And then in 1994, uh, I did a book on John Thompson, the Georgetown basketball coach. Had so much fun doing it. Uh, I went to, uh, in my mind, the greatest editor in the history of the world, a guy named Ben Bradley. Uh, you may remember that Jason Robarts played him in All the President's Men, and uh, uh, Tom Hanks played him in, in the movie called The Post a couple of years ago. Uh, Bradley hired me, uh, and uh, I was uh, 
moving on up the the, uh, the chain, I went to Bradley and, and said, look, I'd like to go back and, and write. Uh, I'm, I'm tired of dealing with people like Tony Kornheiser and Mike Willibon, uh, who are now on ESPN every night, uh, who were great friends, but I wanted to worry about my own ego, not theirs. And so for the last 20 years of my career, uh, I, was a, I, I went back to being a reporter and a columnist. Uh, I covered professional golf. I saw Tiger Woods win his first tournament and then 14 other major championships. Uh, I had retired by the time he won the Masters uh, two years ago uh, and uh, covered over 130 majors. I also covered, I was the national writer for the National Football League, uh, was at a game, sort of a game of the week almost every week and uh, covered every Super Bowl between number seven when the Redskins lost to the Miami Dolphins. Uh, in the Los Angeles Coliseum up to uh, number 46. So I had a pretty good run and uh, also wrote a column in which I was a, uh, I was a, uh, wrote a, a column about uh, sports uh, broadcasting and, and uh, criticized or did features on people like Bob Costas, uh, uh, Chris Berman, whatever. And uh, wrote about, uh, did reviews of, of, of uh, shows uh, involving sports, movies, sports, uh, radio, television, movies, whatever. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I retired from the post in 2011. You do the math. Uh, I had 42 years, uh, a great run, had a lot of fun, made a lot of friends, went to a lot of different places, four Olympics, uh, a lot of Super Bowls, a lot of over 130 major golf championships. And uh, and then retired, and and uh, now my wife and I produce a magazine uh, where we live, about fifty miles west of Washington, mostly because writers write, and I'm still writing. <laughs> I, uh, you know, we we didn't we didn't put a time cap to this podcast, but this is one of those you probably have uh, hours and hours of stories, which we'll we'll dive into a few of those. But seriously, what a, what an amazing. What an amazing like world you've seen, events that you've seen. So I, a lot to unpack. The first thing I need to start with is the uh, the sh- the shooting in your classroom. So that was like totally staged. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and 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 like something like that. I always like am curious. Is that like a one and done, or is that something that professor does all the time? No, no, he did. Well, it it, it got us all you know sort of in the mood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and obviously, obviously, very convincing because that that like that talked to you into going into journalism. Yeah, but when he says, you know, he gets up and says, "Okay, everybody, I want you to write 300 words about what you just saw." Uh, the result of that was a great lesson because a hundred of us wrote something, and you know, there were about 20 different versions of what we saw, which is a great lesson uh, for young journalists. Is that uh, you know, lots of people see things different ways and you better not just rely on one person to give you an account of something. You better get three or four of them and uh, two or three sources on, on almost everything you write. It was a great lesson, quite frankly. But it also it also uh, was the start of a summer that for me made me know exactly, hey, this is what I want to do for a living. And uh, it, 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 it doesn't get much better than that. I love it. So, so let's start with the uh, let's start with a couple broad questions, and then we'll we'll narrow into uh, some of your experiences. But like, what is it in particular about writing that that you feel like? Uh, you, I guess what's kind of like the magical bit that you've dedicated, you know, 40, 50 plus years of your life towards writing that 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 you're in love with. And number two, 
you've covered so much specifically in the sports world. What is it about sports writing that you love so much that you've, you, you know, you've learned it or just kind of what, what, why writing in general and specifically why sports writing that has been such a fuel for you over the last, you know, 50 years? Well, and right, and when it comes to writing, uh, and I, I don't know, you almost, uh, I find myself, uh, I enjoy doing uh, the reporting, the researching. That's, that's a key to victory for any writer, obviously, just to write something off the top of your head. I, I never wrote fiction, quite frankly. Uh, although some of the people who I upset probably said that they thought it was fiction. But um, in any case, uh, I, when I write, uh, I almost sort of go into a trance. I, I, I don't know. You know, I've tried to explain it. It's hard to explain. I just know my, my whole mind is focused on first back in the day, you know, writing on a typewriter and, 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 and focusing on what was appearing on the page. Now, of course, glued to a computer screen. And... Uh, you just sit there and, and uh, Red Smith, who in my mind was uh, maybe one of the greatest uh, sports columnists uh, of our of, of his or any other generation, <clears throat> always used to say writing is sort of like uh, taking a knife, opening up a vein and just bleeding a little bit, a little bit at a time. Uh, you just you just never know what's going to come out. Uh, but but I sit there and uh, I can go on. You know, I can write something in 12 seconds, and it, sometimes it takes me four hours. Uh, as, a, as a newspaper reporter, uh, as a sports writer, I was uh, on deadline <clears throat> probably 70 to 80% of the time I was writing, covering games uh, with a very tight deadline. Uh, but there was always also time to do longer projects uh, and, and uh, seven different books. So... Uh, it's just a process. Uh, I've just always uh, uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoy pushing the envelope a little bit. Sometimes, you know, you'll uh, use a 75 cent word instead of a 25 cent word. Uh, you try and uh, use a little alliteration. And to me, <clears throat> and I always tell young writers, the more you write, the better you're going to get. And, and, and writing repetitiously and, and writing a lot of things uh, in a hurry um, always makes you a better writer. So it's just something, uh, it's hard to explain. I mean, I'm sure a brain surgeon has a hard time explaining how he's able to, to, to put a brain together, but, uh, it's, it just puts me in a state that I've always enjoyed and, and I've been able to do it. Uh, you know, I've, I've written stories literally, you know, lying in a hospital bed. I've written stories, uh, sitting out in 20 degree cold. I've written stories, uh, in 110 degree heat. Uh, nothing seems to bother me really when I, when I'm sitting and looking at the and, and looking at the keyboard uh, and figuring out what I want to say about something. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 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 no, 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 you're good. Keep going on that. Keep keep going on the the uh, the sports sports related well, writing. The, the second part of your question on you know why sports? Well, as I said, <clears throat> I always enjoyed sports. I played sports. Uh, I played uh, ice hockey with a bunch of old fart uh, guys. Uh, up until I was about 50, I was a, I was a fat goalie, uh, but I got so black and blue I had to stop uh, from flopping so much. But uh, I always loved sports, and uh, uh, for some reason uh, I covered sports. They 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 needed somebody on my high school paper uh, to do some sports writing, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I also always enjoyed reading it. Uh, my father, I lived on Long Island, about uh, an hour train ride into New York City. My dad was a school teacher. 
uh, and he would drive. He would uh, take the Long Island Railroad an hour into Manhattan uh, every day to go to his school, and an hour coming back uh, to our town. Uh, and in the morning, he would buy a New York Times and maybe uh, a paper, no, uh, the Herald Tribune, which no longer exists. <clears throat> I'd put him in his briefcase, and then he would, uh, on the way home, uh, he would buy the New York Post, which is a much different paper then than it is now. Uh, it was actually a liberal paper. Now it's owned by Murdoch and Fox, but uh, and had a great sports section. He would come home, dump dump three newspapers uh, on the coffee table, and uh, instead of doing my homework right away, I would read the papers. Uh, they were great, great sports writers in New York back then. Uh, some of your your listeners may have heard of people like uh, Doctor Z. Uh, who was uh, the great NFL guy for uh, Sports Illustrated. He started at the New York Post. I mentioned Red Smith. Uh, there was a guy named Dave Anderson who won a Pulitzer Prize, one of the very few sports writers ever to win a Pulitzer at the at the uh, New York Times. And and uh, I grew up on these people, uh, loved the way they wrote, uh, and in some ways not, not trying to copy them, but certainly saw how they uh, handle things and uh, tried to incorporate some of that in my own writing. Uh, without, you know, certainly not plagiarizing or, or doing it the same way, but uh, always appreciated good good sports writing. So it, it just went from there, and <clears throat> things fell into place. When I went to grad school, uh, you know, as I said, I was part of a, a small Washington bureau uh, for four months, uh, and I always thought I wanted to go into political reporting. Uh, I also enjoyed reading people like James Reston and Harrison Salisbury, great, great, great reporters and writers for the New York Times, uh, and thought I wanted to, to, to do some of that. But there was an opportunity at the Post on that high school, you know, to cover, to take a high school and small college scores over the phone on Friday and Saturdays, and, and I needed a job. I had been married uh, in my second year of graduate school. I needed the money. And uh, it was a great opportunity to get my foot in the door of a pretty good newspaper back then. And this was before Watergate, but uh, it was it was uh, sports just sort of fell into my lap. Uh, and when it happened, I loved doing it and uh, I just kept doing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. How much of um, how much of your writing is like what, like when you're covering a game, for example, pick pick whatever sport we're talking about. Sure. How much of it do you feel like you write in real time versus you jot down notes, you reflect on it later, then you kind of write the story on behalf? Like walk me through sort of the creative process on like covering a game sure. um, in, in that sense. Because like I, I, I think like obviously as a sports fan, I'm excited. I see it from my own point of view. I come up with my own thoughts and I, you know, tell my friends the amazing highlights that happen. But I'm not covering the intricacies of the – the boring parts of the game or any of that. So like walk me through the process of like being a writer for a game and kind of what, what that looks like. Sure. Well, a lot of times it depends on what time the game is. <clears throat> if you're talking about a one o'clock game in the national football league, which usually ends at about four, four fifteen, uh, And my first edition deadline was about seven thirty at night. <clears throat> so I didn't have to write, didn't really have to write anything during the game. Uh, I could pay very close attention. I could take, uh, I did a play-by-play on my own, uh, took notes, made notes uh, of big plays, important uh, turning points, that kind of thing. Uh, then I would go down to a locker room and uh, talk to the, sort of the key players, the guy who caught the big touchdown cash pass, uh, 
the guy who committed a terrible uh, penalty, uh, the guy who knocked down, uh, you know, intercepted three passes, blah, 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 sort of the stars of the game. Uh, and then I would go back upstairs and uh, would have about two hours to sit there and put it all together and, and try and make it sort of coherent and, and, and do it uh, usually in the space of about six or seven, 800 words. Uh, a night game, on the other hand, uh, covering Monday night football, which back in the day started at nine o'clock at night, and I had a deadline. Uh, I had to have a, a story uh, in the in the paper by midnight uh, or twelve fifteen, and so I was writing literally writing all during the game. I would write uh, three paragraphs after the first quarter, another three at the half, three or four, you know, third quarter, and as soon as the game ended, uh, put the a new top on it, uh, three or four paragraphs about, you know, the highlights of the game, uh, very straight reporting. Uh, and, and I could get a game story. I could get a story in the paper that told the reader how the game progressed. Uh, and then after doing that, my last edition deadline was 2 a.m. So after I would file what we call the flash lead, <clears throat> I would then sit down and uh, rewrite the whole thing. Uh, and make it, uh, you know, for the final edition of the paper. So it, several different kinds of processes. Uh, I always loved covering the British Open uh, in golf because I had five extra hours, uh, you know, th the time difference. And I could literally, you know, I could write until midnight uh, and that, that would, uh, I would be able to get a really, really good story that I could think about, that I could talk to a lot of people about. Uh, I could get that in the edition that... Uh, uh, the first edition of the paper that closed at 7.15 uh, in the evening. So I, uh, uh, what would you say, what would you say is something that from your perspective of being so close to the game, obviously covering details and you're, you're, it's, it's kind of similar to like a podcast host, me having you as a guest on the podcast my job is to ask questions, not only that I'm curious about, but also that I know my listeners are probably thinking as they're they're listening to you answer of like, oh, I wish you would ask this, or oh, I'm you know I'm thinking about this as you're answering this. So as you as a writer for sports, what would you say is like something that or or a couple things that like fans that people just watch on TV or people that are kind of passive sports fans, what are they missing that you as a writer that's so deep in the game? Literally, like, what what do you get to see that they don't? And I guess maybe, what do you think? Like, yeah, I, I guess we'll start there. Well, that's 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 fairly easy. Um, <clears throat> I always considered myself, for example, again when I was covering professional football, I always considered myself the middleman between the guys in the locker room and the fans. Now, I had the privilege and the uh, opportunity uh, when I covered the Redskins in the seventies. I was at practice every day. You know except for the day that they didn't practice, which was Tuesday. Uh, so I was there uh, five days a week in practice. Uh, I could see things that they couldn't see. More important, I could talk to people who they couldn't talk to, really, uh, and, and uh, to ask the kind of questions that you would hope that the fans would ask uh, if they had the opportunity. Uh, now, I'm not saying I was a fan. Far be it. Uh, far, far from me being a fan. Uh, in fact, I always used to tell people who asked me, well, who do you like to root? Do you, do you root for the Redskins? Yeah, I root for the Redskins only in this sense. 
when they lost, they were jerks. You know, they were hard to talk to. They didn't want to talk. They grumbled, get away from my locker, blah, 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 blah. When they won, they were on top of the world. Uh, wide, uh, most of them, I should say. Uh, they were more than happy to talk and tell you things uh, that, that they might not have if they'd lost. So that's how I rooted. But my, my main job, I always felt, was in practice, for example, if I saw a player limp off, you know, that was going to be my story. You know, a starter limping off the field with a sprained his ankle, uh, the, the star running back or, you know, the quarterback hurting his hand when his hand hit a helmet. Uh, that was you always look for things uh, that they weren't going to tell you. And uh, that was part of it. So, you, I mean, you, you just you never knew uh, starting your day uh, when you showed up at, at uh Redskin Park at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, what you were going to encounter that day. And, and, and by the way, that's the other great thing about journalism. You never know, okay? You just never know. You wake up, and for all you know, uh, a terrorist plot uh, sends uh, people into hijacking airplanes that they fly into the World Trade Center. You just don't know. Uh, and, and that sounds like a horror story, and it is a horror story. But, you know, we're professionals and that's what we do. So I, I always enjoyed that. And, and uh, yeah, so that's, that, that's the way I, I, I sort of looked at my role as, as a middleman who was uh, in a position to tell people what was really going on if I could find out what was really going on. Now, the other part of that is that wasn't always so easy, and it is still not very easy uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, when I covered a guy named George Allen, who's a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, we used to call him, uh, he had a nickname among the writers. We called him Nixon with a whistle. Uh, very, uh, very wary of the press. Uh, didn't uh, open up his mouth much. Didn't like to talk to us. Didn't tell us a whole, whole hell of a lot. Uh, made us work literally for almost every story we got. He never announced uh, his cuts during training camp. Uh, he might announce a trade that happened at 11 o'clock at night when we weren't even there, made it very difficult. So, uh, you know, he made me a much better reporter, which I, I sort of, you know, very happy and uh, feel grateful about, but it's, it, it's not always easy. And, and, uh, uh, and not that I'm complaining, but, but, you know, you got to work for what you get. The other thing a reporter has to have is curiosity. I mean, if you're not curious, you go sell insurance. And I don't mean to, to uh, malign insurance salesmen, but uh, curiosity uh, may have killed the cat, but it's, a life, uh, it's the lifeblood of journalism and good reporting. Uh, so, if, you know, you see a guy uh, during a football practice uh, who is uh, doing something that he doesn't ordinarily do, you got to ask the question, what's, why is why is uh, why is Joe Blow uh, holding for the place kicker when it used to be uh, uh, Bob Smith? Have they have they changed place kickers, or is the other guy hurt, or does the kicker not like the guy who used to hold for him? So those are the kinds of things you're trying to find out. So you better be curious. <clears throat> I, I I love it, and that that kind of uh, that kind of one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like. In general, uh, specifically in like the sports world, were you pretty well like respected, treated uh, like or I mean, obviously in the what we see on TV today is the 
polar opposites depending upon where you stand in the political spectrum about what people feel about reporters, this, that, and the other, right? <clears throat> but for for kind of throughout the, I guess throughout the course of your profession, but also in the sports world, kind of walk me through. I guess did people treat you as like, I, I, I yeah, I guess the broad question is like, were you pretty well respected throughout, like, or do you feel like you were kind of treated as you know? all right, I'm going to answer my questions, and then get away from me. Or kind of how did that work? Well, it, it just depended. Um, I mean, of course, who could ever not like you? So I, I obviously let's no, acknowledge no, no, no. that. But Trust me, there were plenty, okay? Because <laughs> uh, they don't like what you write. I mean, I had to write a story once. Uh, the Redskins had a quarterback named Billy Kilmer, uh, who uh, his nickname was Whiskey. So that might tell you something. Uh, and he uh, was arrested the night before a big game against the Dallas Cowboys. He was literally arrested for uh, drunk driving uh, in, 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 a, in, in what was known then as a toddle house. We know him now as Waffle Houses. Uh, and I had to write the story. And not only did they write this, did they put the story in the sports page, it was the top, it was the lead story on the front page of the Washington Post, not the sports page. Uh, and when he saw that, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, he, he was not happy and let me know. Uh, at one point, uh, you know, he wouldn't talk to me. And, and after a game, uh, about a week later, uh, I'm standing by his locker room with three or four or five other reporters. Uh, and he says, I'm not going to talk unless Shapiro gets out of here. And I said, I'm not leaving. You know, if you don't want to talk, you know, but I'm not going anywhere. You, you know, don't, don't threaten me. Just, and they started going, well, you want a piece of me? You want to come on. And of course, wiser heads, cooler heads prevailed. Uh, they all had to hold me back, of course, because I was going to kill the guy. No, not really. Uh, but but, uh, you know, and, and that didn't happen all the time. But but but, you know, you write something, somebody doesn't like it. They're going to tell you, particularly professional athletes. Uh, and so we you know, we, you, we had more than occasional heated discussions. I will say uh, I got along with almost everybody. Uh, I tried to be fair. <clears throat> uh, I as a reporter. Uh, I was not trying to, you know, write a, a, a playwright or a, a theater critic, a theater critic's critique of the game. Uh, it was more like, well, you know, I want to get there. So, how did how did you get open to catch that sixty-five yard touchdown pass? How did you get beat, you know, by the by the uh, the other team's wide receiver? What kind of move did they put on you? Uh, sometimes they'll get ticked off at you for asking. Uh, sometimes they won't answer, but you got to ask the question. Uh, so I would say I'd like to think I was, uh, particularly after I did it for a few years, uh, you know, I, I started covering the Redskins when I was 24 years old uh, and didn't know a hell of a lot, quite frankly. I mean, I, I didn't know a lot of football. Uh, I, I had never covered professional football or professional athletes. Uh, but the, the longer I did it and, and the more they saw me around, uh, the more they started reading my stories. Uh, the better it got, and 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 I'd like to think I was respected enough to, uh, you know, to to be honored by, by a, a place in the in the in the, uh, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame with my name on a plaque, uh, and to win a bunch of awards, and and uh, yeah, I I I, I I think I was respected. I was also uh, just as an aside, and I don't I don't mean to toot my own horn. Uh, I served on the Pro Football Hall of Fame selection committee for 30 years uh, until I retired. Uh, I had no idea. I mean, obviously I've done a little backstory. I had no idea about that. That's and amazing. That was a great honor uh, and, and to be involved in 
selecting, you know, a lot of players who were legends in their time. Uh, and uh, a lot of them, some of them, uh, and, and to be sort of a, the guy who uh, did the speech during the meeting to get George Allen uh, into the Hall of Fame, to get uh, Art Monk, a great receiver, into the Hall of Fame, to get Chris Hamburger, a uh, great Redskin linebacker, into the Hall of Fame. And these were three guys, by the way, that I didn't necessarily get along with, but, but I knew, you know, were Hall of Fame players. Uh, right. And, you, you know, you, you might, you might not agree with them personally, but you respect yeah. them as players and they, well, sure. and, and, yeah. uh, and, and, and I'm very proud of the fact that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, I, I was able to put that aside and, and, uh, really, you know, make the case that they all belong. That's so cool. I, uh, no, seriously, Len, I had no, I had no idea what, I mean, what a, what a crazy honor and what like, uh, I don't know, amazing kind of esoteric view on the world that you get to select some of the greatest athletes of all time and some of the greatest athletes in football, but also like kind of go back through and reflect on their, their careers and sure. select the great. I mean, what, what a cool thing. That's, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. And it's, a, and it's a great process, by the way. For sure. Um, what would you say was a sporting event moment experience take this however you want that was impossible or what do you think was a moment that you don't think words could have described how amazing of a moment it was and it could be both good or bad well i'll, I'll give you uh I'll, let's go with the good uh first sure 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 uh, i was fortunate enough in 1980 to have covered the 1980 winter olympics in lake placid uh, and was really fortunate enough because I had played hockey as a kid and, and still played hockey, even while I was, you know, in, 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 in old man's leagues. Uh, I covered the 1980 Miracle on Ice. Uh, I, covered, I covered that team, uh, the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that beat the Russians in the, in the semifinals, uh, a team that had beaten them, I think it was 13-2 to two in an exhibition game a couple of weeks before the uh, the Olympics had started and they came back and, and won a semifinal game uh, by a four to three score <clears throat> and then w- went on to beat Finland in the finals to win the gold medal. And uh, it, it was an important story for a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously, uh, you'll ask most people this. Uh, it may have been the greatest upset in, in the history of sports as we know it, uh, certainly the greatest upset in Olympic history. But maybe, maybe in general. I mean, the Russians were a bunch of uh, professional athletes, truly, even though amateurs, professionals were not allowed to play. They played in the Russian league and were not supposed to have been paid, even though they all had mink coats and drove fancy cars and lived in beautiful luxury apartments. Uh, but And the Americans were a bunch of sort of peach fuzz, American college players, guys in the in, uh, who had played, who had not played professional hockey, but were uh, pretty much college players uh, from around the country, uh, and they had a had a had a very interesting, quirky, uh, charismatic coach named Herb Brooks. Uh, we did not have a lot of access to the players, uh, but uh, it was uh, covering that game. Uh, I remember one of the, one writer, uh, one of the one of the the uh, unwritten rule of sports writing is that the and you've heard the expression, there's no cheering in the press box. In other words, you know, you're supposed to sit there and take notes, keep your mouth shut. You don't root for the, for the home team. You don't root for anything. 
uh, I mean, in your mind, you certainly can, but you're not supposed to say anything uh, other than, a, you know, a, a new one or, or an ah over a big play. Well, before the Russian-American uh, game, with the, which the Russians, you know, were favored, you know, by 20 goals probably, uh, one of the writers stood up in the press box and said, I have an announcement to make. I want everybody to hear this. Tonight, there will be cheering in the press box. <clears throat> and uh, and there was a little bit of it. Most of us pretty, you know, stayed calm. But when a guy named Micah Ruzioni scored a goal uh, with about 10 minutes to play to make it 4-3 USA uh, against the Russians, uh, you better believe a lot of us went, whoa, you know, or said something or maybe even cheered a little. And, and certainly uh, when the final seconds uh, ran down, uh, the goosebumps uh, – uh, were more like boulders than bumps, for, uh, and uh, not only for the people who were uh, covering the game in the arena, but for anybody who watched that game on television. So that was that was a great, great highlight, a great thrill. Uh, I can tell you about another time, and if we have to, if, if you have the time, um, the, the people always ask me what's the, what's the greatest thing you ever covered, and I tell them it's two, one and one a. Uh, one obviously was the, uh, the hockey game, but number two happened four years earlier when I was covering the 1976 Winter Olympics in Innsbruck, Austria. <clears throat> and the last day of the, uh, uh, the, excuse me, the first day of the competition uh, is always the downhill race, which is huge. That year, an Austrian skier named Franz Klammer uh, was the favorite. Uh, and at uh, six o'clock in the morning, 50,000 of his countrymen uh, trekked up the mountain to watch uh, Franzi. His nickname was Franzi, Franz Klammer, Franzi Klammer. Uh, they wanted to see him come down the mountain, even though they'd only have a, about a four second uh, glimpse of him as he whooshed by and kept going downhill. We were watching that race at the bottom of the hill on black and white TV sets provided by uh, ABC Sports, uh, and uh, as Klammer was making his way down the mountain, he almost fell off, almost slid off the course at the top because he uh, icy conditions. He managed to keep his balance, and as he's coming down, all we could hear at the bottom was this incredible chanting echoing through the mountains. Remember, his nickname was Franzi, <clears throat> and all you could hear was Franzi, Franzi. It was like the voice of God echoing through the mountains. Uh, I get goosebumps again just thinking about it. Uh, the, the first time I saw Franzi uh, up close and personal was when he rounded the last bend, came down the last couple hundred meters, uh, made one giant leap over the final mogul, flashed across the finish line, and looked up at the, ele the electronic scoreboard and saw that he had won the gold medal by something like 0.13 seconds over the guy who had the, the fastest, previous fastest time. Well, uh, these were the 1976 Olympics, four years after the Munich Olympics that uh, most people remember uh, as uh, the, the year the terrorists struck the Olympics and killed all the Israeli athletes. Uh, so Austria in 1976, four years later, was pretty much an armed camp. There were soldiers everywhere, uh, guys with machine guns and automatic weapons strapped to their, their shoulders. 
uh, guys walking uh, German shepherds everywhere. And a lot of them were at the downhill, uh, making sure the crowd stayed under control and, and didn't, uh, uh, didn't get it too out of hand, especially if Klammer had won. Well, Klammer won, and guess what? The guess what? What all those soldiers did? The dogs were. They dropped the guns. They went after Franzi. They hoisted him up on his shoulders. They paraded him all around. Uh, security be damned. <clears throat> I must have been kissed that day by about forty different Fräuleins who were in total ecstasy. Uh, and so, uh, when I think about it, it was uh, among the most memorable experiences I've ever had. What an insane story. I mean, yeah. seriously, <laughs> that, that, that is, that is so cool. How, uh, you said you've covered four, how many Olympics? I did four winter Olympics. I never did uh, professional football. Uh, excuse me. I, I never did uh, summer Olympics uh, because it was always training camp and pro football. And, and I had to cover football. You may be, uh, you may be <clears throat> uh, not able to answer this, but after covering like the miracle on ice, you cover that Olympic story, you know, you, you kind of see some of the greatest moments of all time in sports and kind of like in humanity <laughs> was, I don't mean to be a cynic here, but was there any struggle to go back to like a very normal sporting event after that? No, of, not like, really. Not really. Okay. And, I'll, and I'll tell you why I, I go back to that curiosity thing. Um, no, it, it's not, uh, because there's always a story, and, and that's our job. Find the best story you can find, you know, whatever event you're covering, uh, and write the hell out of it. And uh, now, uh, quite frankly, no, I did not want to go back and cover Little League Baseball, but you know, <laughs> as long as I was covering uh, events that, that people seem to care about, uh, you know, I got into it. I mean, I really got into it, and... and uh, whether it was the Masters or a piddly little PGA tournament in Hoboken, uh, you know, you, you, you went for the story, and, and, uh, and I'm still doing it. Okay, I'm going to give you a quick example. Um, I'm, I won't tell you how old I am, but I'm, I'm, I'm pushing mid-70s. Um, I was about to say 27 is where I had you. So. But, uh, yeah. there's, a little, there's a young woman who lives in our uh, area, who I had written a story about for the Post. I, I even though I'm retired, I still write occasionally uh, for my old paper, uh, which is great fun. Uh, but I wrote a story about a, a, a young woman who uh, played high school football. She was the only girl on her team, and was pretty damn good. She was a safety and a wide receiver. Did a story about her. Uh, she was recruited to play college football uh, at a nearby college called Shenandoah University in Winchester, Division Three team. And I was told, and she made the team. You know, they, they actually recruited her. She made the team. Uh, she was a freshman this year. <clears throat> she didn't play. She played a little junior varsity. But this past Saturday, she was about to become, there was a possibility they were going to put her in a game. And if they had, she would have been the first woman, the first woman, ever to play in an NCAA college football game at any level, division one, two, or three. Uh, and other than a place kicker or a punter, she would have been the first woman to play in a regular position. She's a safety. Uh, the bad news is I went to the game hoping to be able to write about it. I knew going in that if the game was close, she probably wouldn't get in. And sadly enough, the game was close enough so that the coach 
didn't put her in. So we'll have, but, but what I'm trying to get at is, I mean, I went to this dinky little division three football game, uh, you know, to, to cover a, a, an 18 year old girl who wants to play football, but it's a great story. I mean, you, you find it would have been a great, great story if she played uh, and it, it'll be a great story when she really does play next year, her sophomore season, which almost certainly will happen. Uh, and I'll go back and do it again. Now, you know, and, and, and I just told you I covered the greatest upset in Olympic history. And then I went and watched Shenandoah University get blown out or uh, win a game against a dinky little school from Newport News, Virginia. I had a great time, a little disappointed that I couldn't write it. Uh, but, you know, that's what we do. I love it. So let's say you never covered another story ever again. What would you say is the, and I'm not talking about the, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's the public highs of like the miracle on ice, the Olympics, but what would you say is the story that you're the most proud of, or like, I don't know what in, in journalist terms, but your legacy story, the one that you're like, man, if I, uh, if, 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 if this, if this was the one that I'm remembered by, I'm, 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 thrilled or happy or fired up about that well the hockey game would be one of them obviously but for sure for sure but the other one might surprise you it's it would be an obituary not mine uh it was it would be an obituary uh longtime washingtonians uh, know the name shirley povich have you ever heard of shirley povich i bet you've heard his son maury povich Yep. Sorry. Um, yes, I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely have. I've heard, uh, heard of the sun for sure. Uh, I'm trying to think. Quick. Story. Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, Shirley Povich was the sports editor of the Washington post at the age of 22. Okay. Uh, in the twenties, he wrote for the Washington post until the day before he died. 70 years. He was at the, he was not full-time. He retired at the age of 70. Uh, but he kept going for the next 20 years. He hired me in 1969. Uh, he became a good friend. He was a legend in, in the sports writing world. Uh, he also was a war correspondent during World War II in the Pacific Theater. But he was an amazing, amazing guy uh, who uh, was, world, was right up there among the, the top three or four in the history of our profession. Red Smith, Jim Murray, Shirley Povich, a few others, uh, and he was a friend. Uh, late, you know, when he turned 90, uh, one of my editors said, I think you better start collecting uh, stuff about Shirley. I want you to write his obituary, uh, which was truly, truly, you know, the honor of my life, quite frankly. Uh, and when he died, uh, two days after filing a column on the old Baltimore Orioles, which was our home team back then in Washington. We didn't have the Nationals. Uh, two days before he died, he wrote his last column. Uh, and I had already prepared an obituary uh, a couple of months ahead of that, which is what we do all the time. You know, uh, you know, somebody dies at 11 o'clock at night and you see in the next morning's newspaper, you know, there's a 2,000-word obituary. How'd they do that? Well, you put them, you, you do them in advance and, and uh, they put them in the, in, in, in the drawer. And when that person passes away, you have the story. You just have to update it a little bit and with the, with the, had a few things and, and you go with it. So uh, 
I wrote uh, a 2,500 word uh, obituary on Shirley Povich, who had been at the Washington Post longer than anybody in the paper's history, had written more columns, uh, more column inches than anybody in the paper's history, and was beloved in Washington. He was a Washington institution, uh, a man who hired me, uh, a man who had seen it all, including covering Dempsey Tunney in the mid-1920s. His best friend was Walter Johnson. Uh, some people think maybe one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball, maybe the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. Uh, and I wrote Shirley's obituary. Uh, I was also nominated for the Pulitzer Prize uh, by my editors for, for that obituary. Uh, so I'll, I'll put that right at the top of the list. Man, I mean, <clears throat> not only is it a chance to kind of like remember all of the amazing pieces he covered, the historical moments, but also like what a cool story to get to tell. I mean, obviously sad of the death, but at the same time, like what a cool story you get to tell on behalf of somebody who spent exactly. his you know whole career writing stories for other people. So yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, so Len, this, this whole podcast is designed around purpose, passion, calling. And I know you've spoken to so many young journalists, up and coming journalists, successful journalists. Uh, you've learned from a lot. You've taught a lot. So, so for, for you beyond just like the, the articles and the writings that are out there in the world for people to read about, but like, what would you say is kind of the, the legacy or the mark that you want to leave on the world or that if you had to choose kind of what your legacy was, what would you want it to be? Well, number one, being being a good husband and a good father and and, uh, and a good son. That's uh, not a bad start. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad start. But uh, yeah. in, terms, in terms of career, I, I, I would just like to be known as a, a, a fair and honest reporter who uh, tried to give both sides of, of, of the stories he covered, who uh, tried to uh, uh, enlighten uh, our, the readers on uh, and help them find out things that they never thought never know, knew or answered questions they would have asked themselves. Uh, and also a part of the, what I did, uh, I, you know, I was sort of an entertainer. I knew that. Uh, I think people read this, read the sports pages uh, to be entertained somewhat these days, you know, with, with Aaron Rodgers not getting vaccinated and, you know, labor disputes and athletes getting in trouble, killing people or beating their wives. Uh, it's not so easy. But uh, I think the entertainment part of it was uh, something I, I really, uh, again, take some pride in. Uh, I hope people remember me for my writing. Uh, I hope people remember uh, that I, that I uh, 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 worked my rear end off for every story and tried to ask uh, the very best questions I could ask. Uh, I also would like to be known as somebody who helped out a lot of young journalists. Uh, I was an editor for about 10 years. And we had some amazing people uh, come through the Washington Post Sports Department, some of whom I hired uh, when I was in charge of hiring uh, the same kind of part-timers from local colleges that I had been uh, a long time. And, and the list of people we hired would astound you. One of them is now the editor of the New Yorker magazine, a guy named David Remnick. Uh, who covered uh, the Washington Bullets NBA team uh, for a couple of years, then uh, also wound up going to Moscow when the Soviet Union came down and won a Pulitzer Prize for it. Uh, I hired a guy named Peter Melman, 
who, when you watch Seinfeld, look for his name, Seinfeld, look for his name. He wound up uh, being the lead writer for Seinfeld for uh, however long the series was on. Uh, I hired a young woman who now is the uh, executive producer for NBC Sports and, uh, and oversees their Olympic coverage and a lot of other things and was the, the, uh, originally the head of the Golf Channel, uh, which is now part of NBC Sports. So I, I take great pride in that. Uh, I've taught at my alma mater at the University of Wisconsin uh, two different times. Uh, I taught at Shenandoah University here in Virginia uh, for a semester. And uh, I, I like to go speak to high school kids and talk to them about journalism and sports writing and some of the things I've been talking to you about uh, and in hopes of getting more people involved. Uh, at the Post, we were very, very proud of the fact that we were, uh, back in the 70s, we were hiring women to cover sports. Nobody was doing that. I'm very proud of that. So there, there's a whole bunch of things I'd like people to remember me by. But number one, uh, and you know, and people say, what, 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 what was the favorite sport you really liked? What was the thing you really liked to, to go see? What sports did you love? I said, well, I watched my, fun, my son play high school football he was a kicker. I never had more fun in my life than watching him play high school football. Uh, <laughs> That's and, so and cool. I believe that, you know, and, and you know, I, if I, if you had to give me a choice between, uh, the Russians, U S, uh, but, I, but my kid was playing, uh, against his big rival that day, uh, and was going to be the kicker, uh, starting kicker. Um, I'd have a tough choice to make, but I'd probably go see my kid play. That's so cool. And I lose love my it. job probably, but <laughs> but it's worth every penny. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, my 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 favorite question on the planet, and kind of like one of the basis for the podcast is, uh, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? And obviously, you know, you you you've covered some amazing things in your life, and obviously, still spending a lot of time doing it. But like, what what is it? What is it at the end of the day that that gets you out of bed and kind of has fueled this amazing career that you've had? Yeah. Well, you know, now I haven't done sports for about eight or nine years. Uh, you know, I don't go to games anymore. I don't travel the world. I don't get on an airplane. Uh, but what gets me going in the morning is uh, knowing that there are still stories out there. Uh, I've, I've transferred now that I'm, I own a magazine out here and publish and edit it. Uh, there are stories to be told everywhere, everywhere, around every corner. Uh, we live in a, a fascinating area 50 miles west of Washington, just as an example. Uh, I found out uh, a young black guy, 40, 45 years old, who has been working in, in our local post office. Uh, somebody told me that he had, uh, he was an Iraq war veteran and, and had been in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, that, that was kind of intrigued me. And when I started talking to me, he said, yeah, well, yeah, I was blown out of a tank, almost got killed twice. Great story, you know, and he's now, you know, working in, in the post office as a a postal worker, and, and uh, you, you just never know. You never know where there's a story. Uh, and that's what was exciting about my profession. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, as long as I'm still involved with it, and I always tell people, you know, why are you still doing this? Shouldn't you be retired? Why don't you go play golf three times a week? I, I can handle it once a week, but three times, you know, no, it's, too, it's boring. Uh, <laughs> let me go out and write. Let me go out and interview people. Let me go see the world and, 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 uh, say, uh, you know, satiate my, my curiosity and, 
and and I'll be happy. Writers write. I always tell people that writers write. I love that. I love that. Well, Len, this has been amazing. Um, is there anything else you want to uh, leave the audience with? Well, no, I, I, I think I think I've spoken long enough. <laughs> Curiosity. That's the key to victory for me. I'm always curious. <laughs> that's so good. Well, Len, seriously, thank you. <laughs> Curiosity. We love it. We love it. Well, seriously, Len, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being a guest in this uh, this podcast, and thank you for all, all all the sports, the untold stories that you've covered, the uh, the the both good and bad, and being a very fair reporter. Seriously, thank you. It's uh, it's awesome. So, well, I'm delighted to 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 be on the podcast, and I'll look forward to hearing it. <laughs> you got it. All right, thanks a ton, Len. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Check us out at thematbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.